I'm Mel. I'm Tiff. And we're on Pump. Welcome back, Pumpcasters, to part two of our podcast series on perfusion safety. In our previous episode, we had the pleasure of discussing the importance of patient safety and perfusion with the insightful Mike Colligan. Today, we're diving deeper into the subject as we explore the incredible potential of the Orem Patient Safety Organization. Welcome back, Mike. Mike, could you also go through what it means for the profession and what these NRE-based simulation trainings might look like, um, and potentially in the future, how it could be expanded throughout the profession? So I think I always wondered, again, going back to aviation, how did they decide what simulations pilots needed to go through to get their certifications and then also to stay certified? And I found out that some of their simulations are based on theoretical failures, like a single engine failure. Uh, But some of the simulations that are required are based on actual events that have happened. And so when you know, I think we are still in our infancy. And at one point in time, there was talk like, well, maybe the ABCP would require a simulation every five years or every 10 years to recertify. I think that's kind of, those discussions have kind of fallen by the wayside. But I think the idea still stands is that if you do a simulation, whether you're, it's as a student or to, to help me, you go to a high fidelity simulation center to help maintain competency because you don't get your 40 cases. Um, as as allowed by the ABCP, that those simulations, if they're going to involve non-standard cases, would probably be best suited to involve events that we know happen and we know how they happen. So you don't want to um, simulate, for example, a high-pressure excursion just by what you think it might look like, or maybe a single case report that you pull out of the literature. Um, We do have reports that have come in where we've gotten second by second data that they were capturing from the heart lung machine. And so we have multiple reports and one specific example of actually how things went. So when somebody does a simulation, they can go through and and sometimes also it helps the person going through the simulation to know this is how it looked for someone else. Not that that way they don't think, well, you know, person who's making this simulation up didn't do a good job or maybe they don't like me. It, It will help them to know as they're going through the simulation, this is really what happened to someone versus wondering about you know, testing bias or some of those other variables that could come into play in that scenario. So those are some of just the ways, and I think I'm sure both of you have thought about this before. There's probably a lot of different ways that these could be used, uh, these simulations, to impact the profession as a whole. Do you currently do simulation training? Was Was that a thing in the company, or was that just an idea that you guys are looking at into the future? No, we currently we currently do it. Um, so Rob Johnson, I don't know if you ladies know him. So he recently switched over from being a CCS perfusionist to being uh, our simulation guy, and I don't know his exact title, um, but he does all the all the simulation for the uh, LTU students, which is one of the newer perfusion schools. Um, and then uh, you know we have a high fidelity simulation center. And people can come. Uh, he he does some traveling uh, with some other people to to go out and do simulations at different sites. I know they did a uh, actually they did a a visit to Phoenix and or Tucson. Did Melissa, you're shaking your head. Yes, did they come to MUSC? No, they did one at WVU. I wasn't there when they did it. It was an right. ECMO simulation, but they did do a pretty comprehensive. It looked it looked really cool. I saw it on LinkedIn through the chief that I had worked for as a student. Right. So uh, he he does some traveling and then there's other people that are not employees of ours who then are trained to uh, do traveling and do that simulation. We don't, uh, I don't remember if your question was about VR. We are just starting in the VR simulations uh, that's up and moving forward. If somebody wants it, we can, we can set it up. Uh, we I don't know if we've executed our first one yet. It's still kind of in the beginning stages, but there's a lot of interest from 
individuals uh, about doing that kind of training because it's obviously it's very high fidelity and at the same time relatively low cost you don't have to fly to a center to do it you uh, um w they don't have to bring equipment to you to do it um but the and the, the other big area of interest is from uh vendors uh we have a lot of companies who are interested in using that to train their sales force or, or train other people as new equipment comes out so that you don't have you know the the idea of buying a, a piece of equipment as complicated as a heart lung machine or even just a cell salvage device or any other you know like a type of extracorporeal support device using that you know trialing it and then buying it and having somebody come and do clinical support for a week the first week you have it is I mean, that's like flying a plane with one week of experience a, a new different type of plane right it they would you would require hundreds of hours if you were a pilot to do the same thing so um, i think that the the opportunities will are definitely there and we'll, i was actually shocked at how much interest there was we had the vr simulator at our booth at amsec this year and i, I don't know if you saw i was shocked people were lined up to use it and give it a try it was very promising. Um, so we'll see where it goes. Yeah. So do you just go ahead, Tim. Oh, So do you just provide the basically the input for the VR simulation and then a, a company creates that for you? How does that work? So I obviously I, I don't understand. I, I think we're working with the the simul the VR simulations that we offer are through us. Uh, I don't think we have in-house people who write the code. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that is is done by people working for us, but I don't think they're people who are going to be with us for fifty years of employment. I, I think they're there, uh, at, and I could be wrong about that. I don't really have inside information on how that aspect works. I'm happy to have you guys should talk to Rob next. There, there you go. There's your I was thinking me. that. I was that was in my brain the minute you said it. I was like, oh, but, I'm gonna give him a call. Yeah, give Rob a call, and I'll prep him to know that he, that, that you like to talk to people who can talk on and on. And on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, we the, really um, love it. Uh, so, but yes, and that's I think where the big opportunity is. I mean, there's probably you know hundreds, if not thousands, of people who can program code simulations in VR, right? The the real key piece of information, and, and this is what I was telling Melissa when I talked to her after her talk, I guess last week, you know, the key piece of information is what does this look like? We as per, as perfusionists or we as clinicians know the entire 100% of the environment and, and we have to communicate that to somebody who can code. You can't have somebody who can code come in and spend two to three years understanding how the OR works and what equipment looks like and what the dynamics are. Mm -hmm. uh, that process is too steep going the reverse direction. So mm -hmm. the long, long answer to your question, but yes, we provide um, a lot of the guidelines, both the bigger picture and the, the scenario specific guidelines to help develop those simulations, both the virtual ones and the, and the real ones. You know, it's fascinating to me because you said that in my, my, this entire time, you know, the only thing running through my head is in the future, you could have a new format for that CAPE exam or, you know, a recertification component for clinicians where, because we're now responsible for so many different types of extracorporeal support devices you have the rise of a perfusionist who primarily works in ECMO, or you have the rise of a perfusionist who's primarily employed to do organ preservation through Transmedics or other, you know, other companies that do OCS. And, um, you know, you're, we're quickly encountering a time point in our profession where I think it's becoming a little inadequate, if I may be so bold, to simply say that you need 40 cases and that's how we're going to recertify a healthcare professional of our caliber. Um, but really, I just kept thinking about VR and like you could literally have a research exam that has a few different VR scenarios and everyone sits at the same time, just like they do for the CAPE and the PBSE to take that exam. So you have minimal sharing of information and 
you can really test a clinician's capability of diagnosing and treating certain problems. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I think that it's a tough concept to get your mind around. I think there are perfusionists who are really good at their jobs and they don't do that many cases. And for those people, if they want to go back and do a cardiac case, you know, a kind of a routine cardiac case, I think they'd probably be fine at 40 cases and maybe even less than that. Um, but to tell you the truth, and actually, if you go and read ABCP's website, they state that their certification is an acknowledgement from your peers that you have the knowledge base. They do not certify, guarantee, or qualify clinical competence. That That's up to the facility. And I think that it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with differences in culture and what you're what you feel confident in, um, you know. There are there used to be perfusionists who would train enough to take leg vein. And even if if a hospital were to credential me to do that, which they shouldn't do because I have not been trained to do it and I'm not competent to do it. It's my job, even if they were to certify to credential me to do it, to to not execute that task. Um, So I think there's a lot of I would love to see some type of easy, inexpensive certification where you can get multiple you, you can get a grasp on clinical competence but it is a it is not a small it is not a small hurdle to jump over for sure in so many different ways yeah well to segue with that whole vr and, and technology um you know precipice that we're at um i think you you seem to share a curiosity for how ai similar to how tiffany and i both have a, a natural curiosity for how ai and machine learning and technology is going to redefine perfusion in the future um and it seems like all three of us had this like similar vision on how emr ehr could be paired with ai to detect patterns of abnormal values to alert a clinician that something's not right and further could be coaxed to fast track a clinician to the appropriate step within a treatment algorithm to decrease the time to mitigation. Um, so, you know, I had to plug this and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to, but um, you had talked about how Orem is looking at variables surrounding high pressure excursions and you guys are getting, you guys are getting pretty close to a predictive algorithm based on a set of parameters and how they behave that could detect one sooner. And that could lead to a situation where you don't necessarily have to add more pressure monitoring systems to your device, but you just train the clinician to look at these other six or seven or 10 variables behaving in a specific way. And, um, and you could see it sooner. So could you talk to us a little bit about what you think the future of the data that Worm holds and how that could be leveraged with tech and AI to improve patient care a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we are, what you're talking about is not, uh, it's it's not com- confidential or hidden information. We have looked at the reports that have come in and we have, I would say, I don't know off the top of my head, but close to a dozen what are called in the, in the, in technical terms are called clinical decision support. So it's something that will not make a decision for you. It won't turn a knob. It won't uh, servo regulate your pump. It won't stop a pump head, but it will pop up an alert and say, hey, this might be happening. You should consider it. And so uh, off the top of my head, I can say we've got clinical decision support already built, meaning we know the parameters we need to look at and, and what the values will be for high pressure excursion, accidental or occult arterial line uh, arterial venous line switch uh, or unidentified arterial venous line switch. Um, what's another one that we have? Uh, there's a third big one that I'm, I'm missing, um, but there's several there's several smaller ones and, and a lot of bigger ones that we have already we already have the numbers, the data. And to tell you the truth, we're really just looking. We don't do products. I mean, that's not our scope, but we're looking to work with a manufacturer uh, to produce that. And I have a pretty good understanding, but I'll defer to someone who wants to tell me differently. Clinical decision support products don't require the same level of FDA clearance that a product like a true heart-lung machine would be, because all it is is offering you a suggestion. Uh, It's not taking care of a patient. It's not making a decision for you. 
Um, so the the barriers to market entry are pretty low. Um, I've been a little bit surprised that we haven't been able to find anyone who's very eager to work on those things yet. Um, and so I wonder what that means for the for the future. Um, uh, yeah, we're so we're relatively new into it, so I don't want to gloom and doom it. But I, I the the few the opportunity is there, and I think that those are instead of thinking about the future as a place where you try and educate four or five thousand perfusionists about dozens or hundreds of rare events that could happen that are different, that are difficult to create, that are difficult to do a differential diagnosis on. That's a that's a mouthful right there. But instead of trying to, you know, the best perfusionist in the world, if you put them through 30 different rare complicated events, they're not going to get all of them. And so how do you help that person? That person, you could use clinical decision support because they've got a strong knowledge base. Once you throw that idea, hey, if you thought about this possibility, they're going to put all those pieces together and say, yes, that's exactly what's going on here. And and be able to mitigate the situation very quickly versus um, versus potentially having catastrophic outcome for the patient. And now now that I know that we have this uh, common interest, uh, can I really take us back to the future? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Where are we going? Another avi- <laughs> another aviation and uh, you know Michael J. Fox uh, reference here. Um, Two very hot topics. Um, So I did publish an article about the future of perfusion, um, navigating the intersection of artificial intelligence and human expertise. Um, At the beginning of this year in AMSEC today, um, it did accompany a fun little AI generated image. And fun fact, uh, we did use AI to generate our podcast logo. Um, We haven't gotten to uh, (laughs) express that to the audience yet, not that they care. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'm sure they're they're writing in their fan letters right now. Right, <laughs> at least the robots are. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, artificial intelligence is a hot topic as of late, um, and you know it's even go gone as far to say that AI can assist physicians in making new challenging diagnoses. So, while the human brain while the human brain takes the cake in making informed and safe decisions in a clinical setting, is it possible that AI could assist human analysts at Orem in creating productive output of data to further generate these safety reports? Well, uh, that's a very interesting <laughs> question, but I think it's it's interesting to me in, in a way that I think is is different from what you'll think. So I think that right now based on what i know when we when we look at an event most of the time it's almost like an an aircraft accident investigation we think of uh, you know all these different things all these different systems that could be incorporated human factors technical components human technical interface communication problems um that's i don't think that's something really an ai is going to be able to do anytime in the future that i think about and I did think, you know, there's a lot of labor involved in in writing the analysis and also aggregating all these reports into our quarterly reports that go out. Um, could an AI do that? And, and everybody, I think, when ChatGPT first came out, started to think about, like, well, could they do my job? And I was wondering about that because um, I don't know how those AIs are fed. Is it fed information based on, I just haven't done the research, based on, you know, does it listen to people's conversations through your Alexa? Does it look at search terms? Does it read writing that's in public domain on the internet? Or, you know, a lot of computers now have, uh, will automatically offer you suggestions to finish your sentence as you're typing, whether that's in your email or whatever. Now, everything, all the analysis that we conduct inside the PSO and everything we write, unless we specifically say this is not patient safety work product, is supposed to be confidential and privileged. So if there's software running in the background that's monitoring that and or helping to generate it, uh, 
I think it it's a it's almost a moral and ethical question. And I wonder if that's happening, you know, on every computer that's in the world. And I just that's my ignorance. I don't know enough about how it works to know. But I, I do wonder about that. And we would never use uh, that to generate the reports. But it's an interesting thought experiment for sure. I know it was a progressive question, um, but I just had to ask it. And, uh, and no, and I, it's, it's it's not controversial at all. It's like a mind. Uh, it's a very, it's a very cerebral. strong. Yeah, very well, cerebral. it's cerebral, but it's 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 profound. I think that's yeah. the word I was looking profound, for. Profound, yeah. yeah. I I know um, you both kind of touched on machine learning, and I think that could be very useful in our profession. And there was actually a publication um, by Roger Diaz and his group um, at the VA Boston Healthcare System, um, where they input data um, regarding, you know, um, your reactions to a certain DO2 level. Um, And then, you know, they trained these computers to, um, to basically alert uh, them in new cases when, you know, what to do when their DO2 dropped. Um, so it was very interesting. And and they found that there was a 78% accuracy in um, the machine learning uh, once, once they taught, you know, they did the coding and they taught the um, computer what to do. So I thought that was really interesting, but I, I'm just thinking all the data that you guys collect, um, it's a very powerful tool, I think, in the wake of everything that's happening. So well, I hope it it finds its way to become so. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure there's somebody out there listening, itching for you to hire them. Like, and they're probably falling out of their chair, like, "Oh my God, the data bank this guy has in this company," you know. Well, we we you know we are really working to. I will tell you quite honestly, a lot of the data that we have is narrative, and so we although. We spend a lot of money to keep things secure. We don't have um, there's a there's a term and it's escaping me, but it's basically uh, linguistic. It's not programming. It's natural language processing. That's what it's called. Um, and, and I don't really understand how that works, but theoretically, that could go through and and look at how we write reports and offer suggestions on information to collect or or I don't know how it would I think that would possibly be beneficial but we are really at the in the infancy of understanding what types of information we can have and and just starting to put a taxonomy together um, to even just categorize the different kinds of reports that we're receiving so um, yeah it's a big there's a lot of climbing in front of us for sure like you said, just take it one piece at a time, right? Right. Thank you for the thank you for the suggestion. <laughs> You're welcome. Someone smart told me that once. I can't remember. Yeah, who well, it was. they might be a smart Alec. I just want to say the last time I talked about AI, my phone just turned off and it literally <laughs> had to like download everything from the iCloud. And this was recently. So I'm just, you know, conspiracy theory yeah, over here. About. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, yeah. it was probably that I didn't up- update my iPhone to the latest version. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's the story we'll go with. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Um, Well, it's fascinating to see how technology can positively impact patient safety, and it sounds like a proactive approach to keeping up with the evolving needs of the field. So speaking of collaboration, I understand that Orem has formed a partnership with AMSET. Uh, Could you shed some lights on this partnership and how it benefits the perfusion community? Sure. So we, uh, I had known that AMSEC was looking to form a national incident reporting system since I think approximately 2014. Uh, And I thought it was a great idea, but I wasn't involved very heavily with AMSEC at the time. And um, contacted probably when when this idea first started. So when this idea first started formulating, I was a clinician, but I didn't really know anything about a legal structure that it would allow it to um, happen. And then I learned about PSOs when I was in the doctorate program at UMMC, 
And as I learned about PSOs, I called Dave Fitzgerald, who was the who was AMSEC president at the time this idea came up. And again, that idea was probably in large part, um, uh, you know, instigated because of the work that ANZCP has done in Australia, New Zealand, and and they've done great work and really are the trailblazers in this space. Uh, and Tim Tim Wilcox would be a great person for you to bring on the podcast because he has a really a lot of input on perfusion safety. Um, so anyways, AMSEC was look, had been looking at this and the attorneys would not let them uh, form one or, uh, or join the ANZCP because it, my understanding, and again, I don't speak for AMSEC, was that at the time, the, um, it wasn't clear if information had originated in the United States but was sitting outside uh, what would happen? What could happen to it? Could it be auditable? Could it come back? And somebody who submitted a report to the ANZCP, could they subpoena that and find out where that report originated from? Uh, so all those things were concerns, and um, it just didn't happen. Uh, and I, so I talked to Dave about it. They were also concerned about the cost. There, uh, they got very high cost estimates for starting it, um, and then. Um, we were working on it. I think Orem was going to do it anyways. Uh, the scale of how big it was going to be was uh, kind of up for debate. And right about that time was when Jim Rieger, who was, again, AMSEC president at the time, um, published a piece in AMSEC today. I think it was June, July of 2020 that um, AMSEC was going to reopen exploration into that. So I called Jim and I said, hey, we're kind of working on this. Is this something AMSEC would be interested in, even if it was more of like a, a public-private partnership? And he said, you know, but Bill, let's let's talk about it. So we ended up, they had the task force formed. Uh, we talked to the task force. They did investigate other options. That There are other PSOs out there. And in fact, when we started, we looked at joining an existing PSO and just kind of having a silo or a branch underneath it. And uh, at the time, there were no turnkey solutions available. Uh, we talked to ECRI, who's this, they're, they're a great organization. Um, they do have their own PSO. And um, at the time, they, they only worked in what's called a common format, which if you've ever reported a an incident inside a hospital incident reporting system, it probably went through the common format. We knew that that just wasn't going to fly for us. I think it's a great goal to have someday because it's a really detailed and long format. But we had this gut instinct, like nobody's going to sit down for 45 minutes to put a report in that has all this confidential, you know, HIPAA information on a patient. Uh, and we don't need it anyways, right? So long story short, we ended up going past that point, eventually worked with AMSECT uh, to get an affiliation agreement. Um, and I, I would have liked to have seen AMSEC be able to do this on their own, but now that we've done it, I can see that the costs are high enough and the labor involvement is high enough that I don't think a volunteer organization could ever realistically get this done. Um, so the next best thing, I think, is to have that public-private kind of partnership where we disseminate a lot of information to help all perfusionists. And we still have some subset of the information that's held for the members so that they get some value for their membership. Yeah. So when you talk about the dissemination of information and that difference between what you get as a member and what you get, you know, if you put in an incident report. So just so just to go through and clarify a little bit for for everybody, um, anybody can submit a report on perfusionsafety.com. That's correct. Okay. Yep. No cost. And they're no going to get a report back that not only has an analysis of that event, but also some really strong suggestions that can go back into other cases that you guys have seen um, as to how they can make their practice a little safer. And then, that is correct. Yeah. And then, so as a member, you know, you get, let's say you have, you know, your, your champion at a center and they're going to bring this to their surgeon, they're close to their surgeon, they have a good rapport. Um, so what are some of the benefits, like what types of information is being held for the membership that's, that could be critical and worthwhile? Yeah. So, uh, 
let me think to, to provide you a good example. Um, there are there are many different types of sentinel events or near miss events that can happen in healthcare. Some of them are uh, active that, you know, a, a person forgets to do something that they should do. Uh, and some of them are latent. And so you may never be able to eliminate all the active event, active errors, right? Uh, but there are latent errors that are sitting all around us in the operating room in the healthcare environment. And you don't know which ones you might be susceptible to. And so for the members, they get non-identified summaries of all the events that have happened. And so let's use an example. Uh, let's say, Melissa, you submit a report that involves a gas supply failure. That's that's a common type of report. Um, and what we do is we send you back for your for your event, we send you back an analysis, and it will have recommendations for mitigation in the future. Those might be new to your report. They might be things you've already thought of, um, but they might be... Um, there might be a similarity between your report and five or six other gas supply failure reports. And so if there are similarities and there are common methods of mitigation, we will include those common methods of mitigation in, in the report that you receive. And we will also and we will say we have received at least five other reports that could be mitigated by this this technique. And we've been recommending this since, you know, six months or since a year ago, since a year and a half ago. Um, so that's the kind of information you would receive in an individual report. The benefit of getting the, the quarterly reports is that you would get all of that information, whether or not you submitted a report or if you knew it was applicable to you. So you get the quarterly report, you read it, and it says, hey, we've received five gas supply failure reports this quarter. Here's the three different ways these five reports have happened. And here's the two techniques that you can prevent to, that you can use to prevent all the, every, every type of report that we've received can be prevented using these, these two techniques. And so maybe you don't realize that, oh, technique or uh, this, gas supply failure type A is not applicable to me because I don't use that equipment, but type B can happen here. And although we test our gas system, we don't test it in the way they recommend. And I never thought that this part of the system could fail in this way and, and result in a, in a problem for us. Um, so hopefully that was clear. To me, it sounds a little garbled as I try to explain it, but that's kind of how, how it works in that if you think about the power of the system, 99 more than 99% of the power of the system is the reports that you receive that summarize events that have happened at other facilities because not only are those much higher in number but they are also um prospective to you so you don't have to experience a sentinel event to alter your practice and prevent that event from happening at your facility yeah that's pretty powerful yeah, to be able to get a quarterly report and, um, yes. you know, get access to that much information. You're you're even looking at the possibility that you're so interested in that quarterly report that you're going to find something, you know, go to work the next day. You put it down. You don't think much of it. You're just going to, you know, take a look around your OR in the morning and maybe that that thought pops in your head like, oh, oh, maybe, you know, the way that we set this up, like I can kind of see how this could potentially happen here. And I didn't think about that before. Yeah, I love the perspective aspect of it. So Mike, Orem chose non-routine event, basically an NRE for short, not by chance specifically because it, it broadens the umbrella to any event you would not want to have happen again. For our listeners and those interested in getting a better sense, can you give a few more obscure examples of events that professionals may be on the fence about submitting, but have tremendous, uh, but also have tremendous value and should be reported? Yes. Well, first, I want to acknowledge two things. Number one, I think when you were referencing the um, earlier, you pulled a quote out of our white paper. And I think that quote was actually, and I could be wrong, I think it was a direct quote from a paper that we put it in as a quote in our paper from a paper that uh, some of uh, Dave Fitzgerald's students did um, 
while they were at MUSC, and I'm sorry I don't have their names memorized, but uh, it was it appeared in the Academy newsletter, I think, in 2016, um, and, and it's referenced in our paper. I think that's an exact quote from them. The non-routine event definition comes from Greg Matei's paper at Boston Children's. Well, I'll tell you an, ex- an obscure example that I was in a, a staff meeting, and uh, the group that I currently work with when I work clinically, um, we were going over the quarterly report and talking about what areas we might be at risk uh, based on the data that was coming out. And so um, one of my coworkers said, hey, not only that, but um, I know this person who did X, Y, Z, but they did it later in their checklist because um, uh, because just because, because that's, that's where that action appeared in their checklist. And so one of the safety systems that they had put in place by, by doing this action later, uh, and not executing it perfectly, it was like, it was like screwing in, uh, an O2 sensor. Something, it was something like that, but essentially what they did is they tested a part of their gas system and then changed their O2 sensor because that appeared later in their checklist. And so, but they, uh, the, the O2 sensor didn't get closed. And so they had tested their gas supply mm-hmm. and they had changed their O2 sensor, but it never got screwed in all the way because somebody interrupted them and said, oh, uh, I need your help with X, Y, Z, right? And so then they went on bypass and they caught it. There was no patient harm. Um, and again, this wasn't information that went into the PSO. Somebody just anecdotally uh, relayed this to me. And then because that, uh, uh, although the patient wasn't harmed, when they went on, obviously their arterial line was not very red, and um, the, the surgeon got very upset, and it caused a lot of problems. I think they had to transfer to a different account. This wasn't someone I knew. It was a friend of a friend. But long story short, things like that, that is, that is a prime example of something that's simple. It, it can pro, uh, an event report like that, even if the patient wasn't harmed, pre, pre, uh, presents a prime opportunity to create a devastating impact on the patient. You know, you don't know what other alarm systems they use at that facility or what their parameters are. Um, that alone could be justification on a specific order of operations that your checklist should be executed in, um, because it and it you know it goes even more extends to the pediatric world because you have less of a margin of error, right? You don't have two and a half, three minutes at, at a, you know, while you're ramping up to full flow. Um, you could really cause neurological insult uh, very quickly. That's true. So when you talked about, you know, the development of a patient safety reporting system in the publication that you authored, you had a really um, powerful line just to segue a little bit to that, you know, how you're talking about how quickly you can cause neurological insult, how quickly a perfusionist has an impact on patient outcome. You said, you know, CPB is described as the highest risk procedure hospitals routinely perform. And then further, you said the rate of serious adverse events appears higher in perfusion than in related fields such as anesthesia. So how do we start a conversation with the upcoming generation of perfusionists and start to reframe the cultural perspective that still may persist on, you know, digging deeper, um, you know, you should be able to do this on your own or be independent, um, performing under lack of sleep as a badge of honor rather than a safety event, um, mm-hmm taking on tasks beyond your skill set or taking on tasks you have not been trained on at that specific facility with a specific device? Um, How do we empower younger perfusionists to advocate for themselves in difficult environments? Is being asked to perform a task or performing a task beyond your proficient skill set, could that be considered an NRE that should be submitted? I know I I asked a lot of things there, but just a conversation on that topic. (laughs) I think that that's an area that is, I think that might be the area where we see the most development in the next 10 years, not not from a PSO perspective, but from an expectations perspective. And, you know, when I was at, at very early out of school, I'll just say that I was at a place and I had been there close to a year 
And I remember turning around and saying, you know, what is this thing back here on the wall? I don't, I don't even know what that is. And, and somebody said to me, oh, that's the battery backup. And I, I had no idea, you know, and it didn't even occur to me. It, it, and this is no knock on U of A as training, but we didn't talk about that, those parts of the systems. And I think that there's, despite the fact that the, the organization who regulates the content of the perfusion for KHAP, despite the fact that KHAP has a standard curriculum, it's very broad. And I think there's a, a high level of variability in, in the training, but also in uh, orientation. And that's probably why the most recent version of the AMSEC standards and guidelines requires, which would, I don't think it was in the 2017 version, but now in the 2023 version, the standards and guidelines requires a standardized method of uh, orienting new members. Uh, to go on to your question, could could being asked to provide care with uh, something that you uh, weren't familiar with could that could you report that to the PSO? Absolutely, you could. We don't. There's very little that's not that wouldn't shouldn't be reported. Uh, we really take all the reports. Now, how much learning can be come from that? I think that that is less apparent because we already know what the answer is. The answer is you, you should be oriented to the equipment and. Uh, you know, at the not at every facility I've been at, but at some facilities and where I'm at currently, we do an orientation and we ask both the person who's in charge and the person who's new to taking call to to agree that they're prepared and ready. Um, and I think that if you're in an environment where you ask for assistance and uh, I can see both sides of the coin. There are times when people are good clinicians and they just don't feel so secure about something and you do need to give them a little push. That happens, right? But then there's also times where you ask somebody to go in and do something that's totally, you shouldn't, but it, I'm sure it has happened where somebody gets asked to go in and do something that they're totally uh, unprepared for. You know, pumping whatever the requirement is, 60 cases in school and then going, that does not mean that you are ready to do any and every case that comes down the pike. I think the expectations are different because of the difference in training and the difference in expectations for the patients. In the early 80s, you could be the top cardiac facility in the country with a 10% mortality rate. Now, if you had 10% mortality, they would shut you down. I don't know who would shut you down, but you would get shut down very quickly. Um, so the expectations are drastically different, right? And and those we need to acknowledge that, that we are not operating in the same realm that we used to operate in. We're in a different environment. In some ways, it's more cautious, but that has also brought us from a ten percent mortality down to you know approximately a one, maybe one and a half percent mortality. That's an acceptable rate for a, for an established cardiac surgery center. Yeah, I think um, this is definitely an ex extension to Mel's question and, and kind of what you just described. But Orem, while being the first U.S.-based NRE database for perfusion, it is not the first NRE registry internationally. And so what role did the ANZCP in the perfusion improvement reporting system and SCPS and CCPS, lots of acronyms, acronyms there, um, so basically the Society of Clinical Perfusion Scientists and College of Clinical Perfusion Scientists Safety Committee reporting forms, uh, what role did that play in the development of the intake form? And could you talk a bit on the importance of certain questions? Um, for instance, in the intake form, hours of sleep leading to an event and in the last 24 hours is on there. Um, I love that because it's an active approach in removing this culture that you are stronger for not sleeping and reframes it in, in, as a safety issue. First of all, as, as I said earlier, that the 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 intake form, the database submission form, was strongly influenced, and we say it in our paper, by the ANZCP and the uh, Society out of, uh, I think it's Great Britain, Northern Ireland. I think that's their abbreviation, uh, which is the SCPS and CCPS. Uh, and I apologize if I'm mistaken on the geographic con constraints around that, but that's my understanding. But we actually, the, the intake, the submission form went over many evolutions over probably almost an 18 month period. And we added, a, uh, we started with the questions that were common to 
we started with all the questions from ANZCP and all the questions from SCPS and the CCPS. And then we added all the questions from the comment common format form, which is kind of the, the preferred form in the US and it's very long. And then we thought up a couple other questions we were gonna ask ourselves and we always wanted to do intake of video and, and photographic uh, material, uh, which we can do currently. Anyway, so we brought all this together and we said, oh my gosh, this is way too long. So we chopped, 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 chopped and cut all, all this other stuff off. And in the end, we had an intake form that was virtually identical to the ANZCP. And in fact, where it was different, uh, mostly in the video submissions, by the time we got to market with our form and went live, they had added video submission and photo submission. So the, the forms were virtually identical. And, and they communicated with us and say, hey, your form is, is a copy of ours. And, uh, you know, I looked at it and I said, you know, that wasn't our intent. But when we get down to it, we had started with these templates, kind of customized them for ourselves. And in the U.S., all the almost every patient safety form that you can find is what's called public domain. So you can just use it without without concern about copyright. Um, and I looked at it and I said, you know what, they're right. The systems are not the systems and how they operate are not the same. But these uh, 10 questions or so are however many it was are are very similar. So uh, we asked them in writing, we said we want to make sure or, or yeah, we asked them in writing via submission and said, hey, we want to ask you for permission to use these because uh, didn't intend to copy you. But we got we built up this whole thing and then we came back down and, you know, these look almost the same. So they were very kind uh, in in granting that permission. And uh, I'm really hopeful. I actually talked to Rob Baker at uh, at the AMSEC meeting. We're and we have already been in contact with the SCPS and the CCPS. And I am hopeful that we're going to do a lot of uh, collaborative work in the future. Um, they are rightly concerned about the the security and the confidentiality of of their information, uh, as are we. But I think that there's broad brushes that we can look at that can really still provide a, a really helpful set of information and also help us to develop just by developing a taxonomy around these things is going to be helpful in understanding the risks that we face. Um, so uh, I think that's all. And they and one of the things I think that's, you know, that the 24 hours of sleep or how much sleep you've had in the last 24 hours that comes uh, that was appeared first on the ANZCP form, but I, although the wording is not identical, I suspect that originated with a, a different type of reporting form. Because, uh, but but I don't know that for sure. So it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer. No, I, I appreciated seeing that on the reporting form um, because I know, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but um, in my recent interviews um, with a couple of candidates, it, it just seems to be a recurring theme um, that, you know, most perfusionists that I talk to have been, you know, their experiences that they have been awake, like for 27, 24, seven shifts. And I think sometimes, you know, it's, you don't want to look weak or, you know, like you're giving up and, you know, you want to be there for your patient, but at some point, like you've got to, you got to um, draw the line and, you know, realize that it's not helping the patient anymore to have a, a perfusionist that's not awake. So, yeah. And, and I would I would I think we as a profession need to ask if is that a situation that really needs to happen? Like, is there are, are, are they do, doing that because there's no one else to come in? Uh, mm -hmm. That's one issue. Or are they doing it because. If they call somebody else to come in and let them out, they're going to hear about it and there's going to be griping and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's a very interesting question. And, and I think it's one that we should all be thinking about. Yeah, we um, do a lot of behavioral interview based questions at Texas Children. So, um, you know, they're they're getting into the meat of their, you know, their past experiences. And um, so it's really interesting to hear those recurring themes. And, you know, most uh, quality insurance, quali most quality assurance driven individuals are well acquainted with a Swiss cheese model of how NREs occur. How does the report analysis factor in 
a human or clinician error that a system department or process or policy failure played a large contributing role? So part of our analysis uses a tool that's available to anyone. It's called the Learn from Defects tool from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And that prompts you to um, identify uh, causative factors uh, that uh, that can that are that vary, and there's uh, patient contributing factors. There's uh, local facility factors. There's team factors. I, I don't have them all memorized, but there's a lot of different factors in there. In addition to that, we also use another tool um, that is called Reasons Error Classification System, and we modified it slightly to fit uh, our 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 work. But that also, I think, has 12 or 13 categories that identify, that break errors down into latent or active uh, and helps to categorize them that way. Um, I will say that it seems to be, we certainly have reports that fall into all categories, but there seems to be a favoritism, if you will, for reporting events that um, the perfusionists didn't necessarily contribute to actively. So leaking connectors they are, that are bonded from the manufacturer, equipment problems, or things that have not yet been described in the literature that it would be difficult to hold somebody accountable to seem to get reported more than something where somebody forgot to do something. Uh, but we do have all types of reports. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's definitely still that cultural aspect that we're going to have to overcome as an industry where... I don't know. It seems like there, there's there's a bit of this uh, stigma to discussing your personal failures. And um, that's a travesty, I think. And it's also a travesty that people feel that way because they are indeed being judged for their failures um, in a negative way. Because there's a lot to learn from a failure. There's more to learn. I love that post that you put up after Sanibel or during Sanibel. I don't remember... But you, you know, you had this post up and it said you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. And that's so true. And, um, you know, another thing that I think you you kind of underscored at that conference in your presentation was that um, there's a lot to learn from other people's failures. And not everybody has to repeat that mistake firsthand in order to gain that learning experience. We can pass that on to the next generation. We can we can share those in confidence now and now that we have ORMPSO, we have that safe space where there is no discoverability and you're free to report your failures and it will produce a safer patient outcome for the next person on the table. Well, absolutely. And I think that we, I, I agree with what you said. I would even say we, it doesn't have to be passing it on to the next generation. I mean, we're really just starting to pass this on to yeah. ourselves, right? And every day I open a report and look at one, almost every day the reports got something new or novel for me to learn. And I, I have been encouraged by some of the reports that come in that show th that are clearly and probably 100% attributable to the perfusionist and something they should have done. And they submit that report and put their name on it and their phone number and their email address. And you know, we send the analysis back to them. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes I've got to be honest. I, I look at it and say, I I'm not sure I would have reported that because. But uh, it's so heartening to see those barriers coming down slowly. But um, you know, if something like that happens to you, and it's definitely happened to me, and if it hasn't happened to our the people who are listening to this podcast, it probably will. And the question is. You know, I think that there's a there's a moral argument to be made that if you can you can put an anonymous report in this system, you can leave no name, no phone number, no email address, and we will have no way to contact you. If some if the FBI broke into our office with guns drawn, we couldn't tell them who submitted that report. It's not technically possible, right? Because there's no login required to the system, and it doesn't track submissions. So. You can choose to put that report in and help everybody else not make that same mistake. But if you don't, what moral ground do you have to stand on for not reporting it? Like you could help somebody else 
it's like, you know, driving down the street and seeing a bunch of nails in the road. Like you could drive through them and maybe your tire is not going to get punctured. Right. But if it's safe for you to get out and sweep them off the road, um, somebody else is going to be very happy that you did that. Yeah, that's um, that's that's a big statement. <laughs> I just want to let it hang there for a minute because, you know, it doesn't really need some things just don't need a response. I mean, you just you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> um, <laughs> that might have been a bad pun or bad timing. I I'm know. Not sure, but, uh, point taken. Point taken. Uh, I don't know. I started thinking about Bitcoin almost like, you know, like a decentralized, uh, decentralized medicine, you know, you can't trace it back to anything. I don't know. That's uh, my, my mind was uh, somewhere else. <laughs> AI, AI. Your AI iPhone wants you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, to, to credit to that, um, on that same topic, you know, there's, you authored a really interesting analysis on perfusion vacancy and turnover. I loved it. It was, it was so comprehensive in the perfect way because you talked about the market. You talked about how people are throwing certain things out there and it's, it's catching in the wind and we don't have a lot of data to support, you know, that stance that we're in, in a shortage of perfusion um, you also went through the top modalities that centers are utilizing to mitigate the short staff situation, which to me was brilliant because it's a question that everybody's facing. Um, and it's nice to have that paper there and, and say, okay, well, there's, you know, there's four or five main ways people are doing this. And, you know, let's just not reinvent the wheel. And let's go with that first if we can't find someone to hire. Um, but that's not really like the question that I wanted to ask or highlight. It was more so on the on the stem that in the last year we've opened, I think, three new perfusion schools. It could be a few more. I'm like I'm tr trying to keep track. Um, right. But you you highlighted the importance to understand the demographic shift that that brings. You know, now you're going to saturate the field with individuals who have less experience, and you're losing people with more experience. And you pair that with the likelihood that a vacancy is probably more consistently available at a center with a high turnover rate. Um, and that to me just speaks to oncoming catastrophe if it's not properly addressed. So what does that mean for the incidence rate of specific types of NREs do you think you'll be seeing in the near future if you do get you know, these new perfusionists listening to this podcast and saying, oh, let's do it, like let's use this NRE system um, do you think there's going to be a change in the types of NREs that you're going to be seeing coming in, depending on the skill level of the perfusionist? And do you think that Orem has a, a, a part to play in, in helping graduating students assess centers for safety or creating a resource that provides that helps them grow? Well, assessing centers for safety, I had not thought about, and I, it's probably not an area that we would delve into. Um, I, I will say outside of Orem, when I had students, just casual observation, students that graduated and then you would keep touch with them, in touch with them. I often told them the most important thing, and this was before the current set of AMSEC standards and guidelines, is that when you get somewhere, you have to have whoever is you trust most clinically show you every system and setting that is on that heart lung machine that can stop flow, interrupt flow, um, shut the pump off, shut the pump down. Um, so, you know, this year's annual report to AMSEC focused on alarm confusion and mode confusion. And we did have a, a, a reasonable number of reports that involved those, but outside the PSO, I've had many people and I've watched uh, or or had firsthand knowledge of many people who have had problems with the operation of the heart lung machine because there was an alarm setting in place that they didn't understand or they didn't know how to turn off or they didn't know how to override or the alarm that was triggering was confusing, not clear or could be silenced for too long. And then by the time it comes back on. Uh, you know, you're in a dire situation. So that was kind of my advice to the students. Like one exiting piece of information is you need to know. And that's that was when I first came out of school, 
there's, again, uh, not throwing any discredit at the schools, my school or other schools, and not throwing any discredit at several of the places I've worked at. But that was just not something that was done. It was just kind of like, well, you've, you've done five to 10 cases. You, you seem to be doing okay. The surgeon likes you. You're good to go, right? I personally, and I think we as a, as a profession are now starting to more profoundly understand that there is a real risk there and, and you can really get into trouble by not understanding um, the functionality and how the functionality can change in different settings on the heart-lung machine based on uh, on the way it's set up. And, and so um, uh, I, I do wonder, I never thought about what you're saying now as we have a larger number of young perfusionists enter the market, will we see different types of reports? I don't know, that's a good question. Um, maybe because of AMSEC standards and guidelines and the large number of people with relatively little experience, maybe the training and orientation will become, you know, site-specific orientation will become much better at different facilities, and that'll help mitigate that. Um, but I will say that the, the reports, I, I have not seen, an anecdotally, I have not seen a trend in the types of reports that are being reported by people of different year experience levels. So far, it seems to be, you know, across the board, every every experience level can can essentially generate any type of a, a report. But a um, very interesting question. I had not even considered that possibility until now. I think um, I think that is a very good question to kind of keep open ended um, and and to think about, and you know, to have you on next time. <laughs> For uh, another two hours of torture, um, <laughs> it's not torture here. Uh, I, don't, I just have to make sure I have something to drink. Yeah, <laughs> it was fun. Um, but yeah, Mike, we really want to thank you once again for joining us on Pump and sharing your valuable expertise on patient safety and perfusion. It's really been enlightening, and um, I definitely think our listeners will think so too. So as we wrap up our conversation. One more question. Do you have any final thoughts or advice for our listeners, especially those working in perfusion? Uh, no, I don't have any specific thoughts or advice for the listeners. I think that self-education, as you have both pointed out, is is really important. We're all going through it. And so if people are listening to this podcast to get a better understanding of perfusion and what's out there. I applaud that. And I think that uh, I applaud both of you ladies for putting this together. I think it was definitely um, to, to the limits that our field is relatively small. I think this will be a dominating force in the field uh, in our, in a small field, it'll be a big impact. How's that sound? Oh, that means a lot. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're we're exciting, uh, excited. Yeah, I can't. You're exciting too. Exciting. Generate a lot of excitement about the podcast. See, I can't even talk at this point. You just got to cut me off. But... Yeah, I was losing oh. steam there. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but it's it's been fun. We've just been um, Mel and I. I think have a little bit of insanity um, in us. I think we just like we think of ideas and we start texting each other, and it's just like we make it happen. So it's, it's really fun. Um, but on that, uh, one final, final question, are you gonna, um, ever do a Ted talk? <laughs> yeah. I tried to make, uh, what talk was it when I was at Sanibel last year? So 2022, I tried to make that talk Ted talk style, but they told me I couldn't move from the podium. So if, if I ever get an invitation, I will go back and try uh, that talk at Sanibel in 2022. I made it like almost exactly 18 minutes. That's what they say you have to do for a TED talk. I mm -hmm. chopped it up into different sections like they, you know, I, I looked into it. So um, we'll see. When I speak, I usually put big pauses and I hesitate about picking the right words. So mm -hmm. I wrote that whole speech out probably six months beforehand and just practiced it like 200 times until even if I just, you know, smashed myself in the head, I would, the words would still come out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, that's not, it's not an easy, it's a huge, for me anyways, it's a huge um, hill to climb. So uh, mm -hmm. if I get an invitation, I will certainly consider it, but it's got to be, 
I got to have way a long time to prep. Well, we're we're holding you accountable, so <laughs> <laughs> I will nominate you. Accountability partners on this one. <laughs> well, yeah. we look forward to your TED talk. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, we'll put the application for you. You know, I didn't even know that that's how the process. I don't works. know if that's how it works either, but I want to find out. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But yeah, thank you, thank you so much for for coming on, and honestly, like, thank you so much for making time on on such short notice. Um, you know, this this is probably like the <laughs> the most chaotic one that we've done in the sense of like leading up to it. You know, Tiffany's been super busy. Like, I got slammed at a week that I thought I was going to have so much time, and you've you were such a good sport. It comes out condescending, but like you were, you were just so good. At, like, <laughs> that's not what I, I meant, but like, yeah, we're were, all busy. And definitely yeah. I, I appreciate that you ladies are putting in, as I said, and as I hope, you know, everyone appreciates, it's a huge amount of effort on the back end. I can just think about what went into generating this question list and the, and the kind of the, the pattern of the, 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 the episodes that you put together. Uh, so it, it's way more work on your on your part, and uh, I'm I'm happy to be on. Like I said, I love, and the, it's just a great conversation about what you know what the future could be like, uh, independent of a podcast. So no problem at all. I really appreciate the invitation. All right, we'll Thank let you, you so we'll let you fun. get going and enjoy like whatever's left of your evening at this point. <laughs> Find some water, you know. <laughs> That's right. I'm gonna go drink some water. Thank you so much, and uh, you ladies both enjoy your evening as well. Thanks. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Uh huh. I agree. Take care. That's a wrap for this episode. Your source for all things perfusion. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at pumpcasters at gmail.com. Until next time, keep the blood flowing and an eye on your level. From the latest techniques to the biggest challenges and trends, we cover it all on Pump, the perfusion podcast that never misses a beat.